Good, well, I, I know we all come from a variety of church traditions, but it would be a great help to me uh, if you could please keep your Bible open at Psalm 19. Uh, I think it will make more sense to you, and it will be an encouragement for me. So, won't you bow with me, and let's ask for God's help as we look at this great psalm. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege of opening your word and holding it in our hands. And we pray now that you would open our lives and hold them in your hands, so that as we read about you in the pages of Scripture, our hearts may be warmed with a renewed awareness of your love, our minds might be filled with your truth, and our lives might be equipped to serve and to glorify your holy name. And we ask it for Christ's sake. Amen. Well, we're in a a short series here at St Barnabas celebrating the recovery of Christian truth that took place during the Protestant Reformation 500 years ago. Uh, It was a time when men and women really did want to get right with God. But uh, over the centuries they'd been horribly confused and misled by a corrupt church. So one of the greatest achievements of the Reformation was to establish the Bible rather than the church as the ultimate authority in all matters of faith and practice. And that Psalm 19 explains why that is so. Uh, You might like to just have the bulletin open in front of you because there's an outline of where we're going in the next few minutes. Now you might be thinking, well, okay, why are we looking at a psalm? I mean, why not one of the many, many passages in the New Testament that speak about the authority of the Bible? Well, one of the reasons that the Psalms are so very precious is because they actually give us something that we don't find elsewhere in the Scriptures. Um, On the one hand, they give us revelation, which is, of course, God speaking to us about his character and his promises. Now, I know, of course, the rest of the Scripture also does that. But the Psalms give us something quite unique because they also give us response, which is us speaking to God. This combination of revelation and response is actually unique in the Psalms. And the reason that the Psalms are so very important for Christians today is because when we put these two things together, they spell a third R, which is relationship. Now that might sound blindingly obvious to some of you, but think about it for a moment. You know in your own experience, don't you, that if a relationship is going to thrive and prosper, there needs to be regular, clear, two-way communication. You can't actually have a relationship if one person does all the talking and never listens. The wonderful thing about the Christian faith is that we have a God who speaks, but 
we also have a God who listens. No other religion can claim that combination. And it means that alone in all the world's religions, Christianity offers the potential for a relationship with Almighty God. I wonder if we really believe that this morning. It was the great discovery of the Protestant Reformation. A few years ago, a man called Eugene Peterson wrote a a marvellous devotional book on some of the Psalms, and in the first chapter, he makes the most fascinating observation about Christian culture in the West. And he's noticed that in the church today, there are two kinds of people. On the one hand, there are pilgrims. Uh, They're on a journey to be with God in heaven. Jesus is the way. And pilgrims stay on the road following Jesus. They are focused. But Eugene Peterson has noticed that there are also tourists. Uh, They too are on a journey. But it's not quite the same. Listen to the way that he describes them. Quote, Religion in our time has been captured by the tourist mindset. Religion is understood as a visit to an attractive site to be made when we have adequate leisure. For some it is a weekly jaunt to church. For others, occasional visits to special services. Some, with a bent for religious entertainment and sacred diversion, plan their lives around special events like retreats and rallies and conferences. We go to see a new personality, to hear a new truth, to get a new experience, and so somehow expand our otherwise humdrum lives. The religious life is defined as the latest and the newest. We'll try anything until something else comes along. End quote. Now let me ask you, uh, would you agree with that? Do you think a great deal of religion in South Africa has been captured by the tourist mindset? Well, of course, it's very dangerous to generalise, isn't it? But personally, I think he's quite close to the mark. And if he's right, the, the only way back to spiritual health is by going back to the Bible and by rediscovering what a relationship with God is all about. And that's why we're looking at Psalm 19. Because verses 1 to 11 of Psalm 19 are all about revelation. They tell us how God reveals himself to man. And then in verses 12 to 14, it's all about our response to that marvellous revelation. And when we put these two things together, we have God's design for a real relationship. I expect practically everybody here this morning has heard of C.S. Lewis, and we probably think of him as a Christian author, an author of books like Mere Christianity, uh, The Chronicles of Narnia, The Screwtape Letters, and many more. But he was more than just a Christian author. C.S. Lewis was for many years a professor of English literature at Oxford University. For that reason, 
his professional opinion about the Psalms as literature, I think, is worth hearing. Listen to what C.S. Lewis said about Psalm 19. He said, I take this to be the greatest poem in the Psalter and one of the greatest lyrics in the whole world. That's what a professor of English literature thinks about the passage we're looking at together this morning. He's saying, you see, that this is not only important truth, although it is that, it is beautiful poetry. And that means that it wants to push life-giving gospel truth into our hearts, not only through our minds, but through our senses. Because, of course, that's what poetry does. And it is this great appeal to our senses that I want to use as the basis for getting at the main message of the psalm this morning. And we're going to do that by considering three simple questions. Question number one, can you hear the heavens? Verses one to six, can you hear the heavens? Now, of course, to the rational mind, that question sounds ridiculous because only man has the gift of language. The heavens don't actually speak. Everybody knows that. And yet, Psalm 19 won't let us off the hook so easily. Just look at the verbs in those first verses. There are no fewer than six different synonyms for speaking. In verse 1, the heavens declare and the skies proclaim. In verse 2, they pour forth speech and display knowledge. In verse 4, their voice goes out into all the earth and their words to the end of the world. You see, the psalmist is very, very obviously making a point. The heavens really do have something to say and he wants to know if you and I are listening. Please will you notice um, this speaking that the heavens are doing isn't something that just happens now and again. It is continuous. It goes on day after day, night after night. And it's not just for religious types, it's for everybody, because there is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Now, a few moments ago, we had a reading in Nua and a reading in Swahili. And there would have been people here thinking, well, I wonder what on earth they're saying. Are they actually faithfully reading Psalm 19, or is it something else? Well, you see, the heavens don't have that problem. They speak directly to all people everywhere in a language that everyone can understand. Now, at first sight, it all, this all sounds rather strange. But you see, perhaps we, sh we shouldn't really be surprised. After all, uh, millions of people read the daily horoscope, don't they? Hoping that the stars and the planets will tell them something marvellous about their future. 
Now, of course, when they do that, they're actually hearing far more than the heavens are actually saying. But isn't it interesting, the very fact that they think the heavens have got something to say is significant, don't you think? Because even the scientist has to admit that there is a design in creation that's pointing to a reality beyond itself. He can't ignore it, even if he can't quite explain it. Richard Dawkins is a notorious atheist. He's also a scientist. But in one of his books he says this, Biology is the study of complex things that appear to have been designed for a purpose. Now that's quite a statement, isn't it, for an atheist to make. Bit of an own goal, really. But you see, even a hardened atheist has to admit that in creation there appears to be a design. There appears to be a purpose. What on earth is it? Well, verse 1 says quite clearly that it is to declare the glory of God. The heavens are declaring the glory of God continuously and to everybody. What does that actually mean? Well, you'll find the answer to that question in the New Testament. So can I invite you please to keep a finger in Psalm 19 and turn with me to Romans 1 on page 794. Romans chapter 1, page 794. And the reason I'm asking you to turn here is because this is the Apostle Paul's commentary on Psalm 19. Romans chapter 1, and we'll pick it up at verse 18, page 794. Paul writes, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. Now pause on that. You see, the Apostle is saying that through creation, through all his works on the earth and all his works in the heavens, God has made two things crystal clear to men. He's revealed the fact of his existence, that is to say his divine nature, and he's revealed his awesome power. And this revelation is so compelling that it should lead every single human being on the face of the earth to seek God and to thank him for bringing them into existence and to worship him. And according to the Apostle Paul, we have absolutely no excuse for not doing that. But what do men actually do with that revelation? 
Well, in verse 18, Paul says, we suppress it. Men just do not accept it. They ignore it. They actually don't hear it. So, if we're to have a relationship with our Creator, something apart from creation is needed. Now keep that in mind and come back with me to Psalm 19. And before we move on, we need to pause for just a moment on the superb illustration at the end of the first section. The psalmist uh, points to the sun and he says, you know, the sun is the perfect illustration of what I want to say. Just look at verse 6. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is hidden from its heat. Very interesting. Uh, C.S. Lewis says that last phrase in verse 6 is the key to understanding the whole thing. It's saying that God created the sun and he directed its heat into every single corner of the world in order to give physical life. There could be no physical life on earth without the sun. I mean, just imagine for a moment if God just sort of flicked a switch and turned the sun off this evening. Imagine what would happen. The scientists tell us that within a few months, the entire earth would be a solid block of ice. The only life on earth would be in the deepest depths of the oceans, where a few tiny little worms and creatures would be kept alive by the heat that bubbles up through the earth's crust. All other life would cease to exist. Now here's the genius of this illustration. For the next five verses, the psalmist is going to be talking not about God's revelation in nature, but God's revelation through his word. And the point that the psalmist is making in verse 6 is that just as there could be no physical life without the sun, so there can be absolutely no spiritual life without God's word. So, the second question we need to ask this morning is, can you taste God's word? Verses 7 to 11. Now, although the Psalms uh, do use different names for God, it's actually very unusual to find two different names for God in the same Psalm, and yet that's what we've got here. In verses 1 to 6, the divine name is simply God, G-O-D. It appears just once in the very first verse. And in the original, that word is talking about God, our creator. But in the second half, the divine name changes to Lord, capital L-O-R-D. Now, in the Bible, that is God's personal name. It's the word Yahweh. And it's used in this psalm not once, but seven times. And as I'm sure some of you know, in Hebrew thought, seven is the number of completion or perfection. 
So you see, this change in the name of God in Psalm 19 is teaching us that the voice of creation is important, but it is limited. It can only tell us about God the Creator. But the second half of the psalm reminds us that it's actually possible for every human being to know God in a far more personal way. So, glance with me for a moment at the very last line of the last verse. Because there you'll see that the Lord can be my rock and my redeemer. In other words, he can be a firm foundation on which I can build my entire life. Why? Well, because he's able to rescue me from slavery. He's able to redeem me from slavery to sin and death. The the history of slavery in North America uh, describes a notorious slave market in New Orleans. And uh, one day, two men strolled in and were watching a young man being sold off by the auctioneer. And uh, all his good points were being spoken about as if he was no more than an animal. Well, one of these two men had recently lost a son of about the same age and his, his heart went out to this young slave. And so he joined in the bidding and uh, eventually he, he bought the young man for a very high price indeed. And immediately he sent for the blacksmith and said, cut off his chains, I've bought him, and I'm going to make him a free man. Well, the blacksmith did precisely what he was asked, and with tears streaming down his face, the slave cried out, he's redeemed me, he's redeemed me. I'll follow him and I'll serve him to the end of my life. See, the Lord... The Lord is willing to be the Redeemer for literally anybody, even you and even me. But in order for that to happen, we must hear the voice of his word. Now that is the idea in verse 7 of the psalm. Just look at verse 7, very important verse. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul or giving life to the soul. Now, the word for law there is actually the Hebrew word Torah. And it's not the kind of law that a lawyer practices. uh, And it's not talking about the Ten Commandments. It's not that kind of law. It's talking about everything that God wants us to know about himself. And this Torah is perfect. Why? Because it gives life to the soul. It's the source of new life. It is the source of new birth. How on earth does it do it? Well, this is fascinating, so keep a finger again in Psalm 19. Turn this time, please, to 1 Peter 1 on page 863. 
1 Peter chapter 1, page 863, verse 23. This is absolutely amazing. How does the person become a Christian? Key question, isn't it? Verse 23, 1 Peter 1, are you all there? Verse 23, for you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. For all men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. Now you see, the Apostle Peter is putting two basic gospel principles before us. The first, in verse 23, is that if a person is going to be born again, if they're going to inherit eternal life, they must have God's word. Being a good person, being born into a Christian home, singing gospel choruses, saying your prayers, on their own, these things aren't enough. You must have an experience of the living and enduring word of God. And second, in verse 25, we're told that the means that God has chosen for us to have this experience is preaching. Sermons. Oh dear. Not very popular. Most people would rather watch a DVD uh, or read a blog. But God has chosen the preaching of his word. And when this is properly done, the voice of God is heard and God gives life. We'll come back to Psalm 19 because we're told there what the result of this experience looks like. Uh, In verses 7 to 11, we find six different synonyms for the word Torah. Now, don't worry, the psalmist isn't going to want us to agonise over the particular differences between statutes and precepts or commands and ordinances. But you see, what I think he does want is to show us the impact that God's word has on the life of the regenerate believer. These things are signs or proofs that a person really has been born again. I'll mention three of them. First, God's word gives new understanding. Can you see in verse 7b, we're told it makes wise the simple. You see, when it comes to understanding why the world is as it is, by nature, you and I are simpletons. We trace all our problems back to corrupt government or poverty or lack of education or prejudice. But my dear friends, those things are only symptoms. It's only when I'm born again and I start to read God's word with my eyes open that I begin to see all the true underlying causes of these problems and start to see what God 
has done about it. Second, God's word brings new joy. Can you see in verse 8, it says, it gives joy to the heart. Now, I know that when I say that, there are almost certainly some people sitting here this morning who will say, Simon, if you only knew my circumstances, you would know that joy for me, not possible. Let me suggest that's because we tend to confuse joy and happiness. The uh, American evangelist D.L. Moody explained the difference like this. Happiness is caused by things that happen around me and circumstances will spoil it. But joy flows on right through the trouble. Joy flows on through the dark. Joy flows in the night as well as in the day. Joy flows all through persecution and opposition. It is an unceasing fountain bubbling up in the heart, a secret spring that the world can't see and knows nothing about. And the Lord gives his people perpetual joy when they walk in obedience to him. Third, God's word brings new moral boundaries. That's verse 8b. Verse 8b says, the commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. You see, the idea here is that God's commands show me where the line is between right and wrong. Oh dear, how often we hear people say, you know what, you Christians, you're just hypocrites. You're no different from anybody else. And sadly, there is an endless stream of surveys that would confirm that. But you see, that's because in recent times, the church has lost its nerve. It's come to believe that if we do preach the commands of the Lord, it'll drive people away. They won't come on Sundays. But when the people of God are denied the clear light of God's word, when there is no teaching on what pleases God and what displeases him, well, it's inevitable the church will start to look just like everybody else. And that's why we urgently need to hear these words. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. Now, <clears throat> where are we with all of this? If the word of the Lord is the one thing I absolutely must have in order to know God personally, the key question is this. How do I know I've got it? How do I know I really believe it? And when we look for an answer to that question, we find the psalmist asking us a surprising question. It emerges from the rather curious language in verse 10. Verse 10 says, The ordinances of the Lord are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They're sweeter than honey than honey from the comb. Now you see, that verse is teaching us 
that believing God's word is not simply a matter of knowledge. It's not just about passing the exams at college. Rather, the psalmist wants to know, how much do you love it? Are you pursuing gold rather than pursuing God? Is God's word sweeter to you than all the other pleasures of life, of which, of course, there are many? Can you taste God's word? You see, if you can't taste God's word, if it's not actually sweeter than honey to you, that may be, I'm not saying it is, but it may be a clue that you haven't yet asked the Lord to be your Redeemer. And that brings us to the third and final question I want to ask this morning, which is, can you see your sins? Verses 12 to 14. Now, in the first 11 verses, God has wonderfully revealed himself to David through creation and through his word. Now, what would you expect the person to be like who's had his eyes open to this absolutely marvellous revelation? What would you expect such a person to be like? Would you expect to find somebody who's thoroughly persuaded of their intellectual ability? Well, of course, there are people like that. There are some Christians like that. That's not what we find in Psalm 19. Or would you perhaps expect to find somebody who's absolutely fizzing, bubbling over with excitement by all their spiritual privileges and blessings? That's not a wrong thing, by the way. Uh, Many Christians are like that. It's absolutely marvellous when they are. But it's not what we find here. Now, I take it that in verses 12 to 14 we're being shown the right response to God's gracious revelation. And that response is a combination of two things. First, it is a deep conviction of sin and personal frailty. That's verses 12 and 13. And second, in verse 14, it is a sincere desire to please God both by what we say, the words of my mouth, and by what we think, the meditation of our hearts. And the message, you see, of this last section of the psalm is that the first leads to the second. Because it is by taking my sin seriously and dealing with it honestly before the Lord, it's that that produces the words and the thoughts that are pleasing to Almighty God. There is no shortcut. I cannot possibly be pleasing to God without this. So verses 12 and 13, my dear friends, are the life support system for every Christian because they show us extremely clearly how sin spreads like a cancer if we don't address it. So firstly, in verse 12, the psalmist says, forgive my hidden faults. Now that's an absolutely ingenious phrase. 
You see, he's not saying that the faults are invisible. No, he's saying that these faults are so much a part of me that I can't see them. I need you to come and point them out to me over coffee. But if these are not dealt with, they lead, notice this, to the willful sins of verse 13. So those are the times when I quite knowingly and deliberately disobey God's word or turn away from something that I know God wants me to do. We've all done it. But these must be confessed and repented of as soon as we become aware of them. Because if I don't, the result is that these willful sins will rule over me. Can you see that? Second line, verse 13. They, I'll reach the point where I can't break free. And you know what? The scary thing is that that is God's judgment on me. And it's a terrifying thought. Because if I don't deal with my willful sins, I end up committing the great transgression of verse 13b. Oh dear, the, the scholars have um, speculated endlessly about what the great transgression might be. Um, is he simply talking about gross sin, adultery, murder, that sort of thing? Or does the psalmist perhaps have something more specific in mind? Well, I think he does have something much more specific in mind. And the reason I say that is that there is only one other place in the whole of the Old Testament where you will find that phrase. And it occurs three times in the same chapter. So as we close, won't you turn with me please to Exodus 32 on page 69. Exodus chapter 32, page 69. Now, as you're turning there, won't you remember that at this point in the Bible's story, Israel are the people whom God has rescued. He's redeemed them from Egypt with mighty signs and wonders. And he sustained them in the desert with manna and quail and water from the rock. He's given them his glorious word at Mount Sinai, showing them how to live in order to please him. And the people have stood up and said, Alleluia, praise the Lord. We're absolutely on board with this. We are committed pilgrims. That's what they've said. And in Exodus chapter 32, uh, Moses is temporarily out of the way. And uh, the people have become restless. Uh, they want a new religious experience. So they make a golden calf. And they bow down and they worship that. Now what is God's verdict on that? What does God think about it? Verse 21. Moses says to Aaron, What did these people do to you that led them into such great sin? Now that is the same phrase in the Hebrew that we find in Psalm 19. Great transgression. What did these people do to you? 
that led them into such great transgression. Verse 30. The next day Moses said to the people, you have committed a great transgression. Verse 31. Moses went back to the Lord and said, oh, what a great transgression these people have committed. Do you see what's happened? These people are no longer pilgrims. They were, but they're not now. They've become tourists. And Exodus 32 is teaching us that the great sin of these spiritual tourists is apostasy. It is turning away from the God that you know has redeemed you in order to worship another God. And the New Testament says that when you reach that point, you may find there's no way back. So what we learn from this marvellous and very important psalm this morning is that this doesn't happen suddenly. Here's the warning. There is a progression. Hidden faults are not brought to light and dealt with, and they lead to willful sins. And if I never deal with those, in the end, they will produce the great transgression. May the Lord have mercy on all of us. I'm going to stop there. We're going to have a moment of quiet for you to just reflect on what God has been saying to you through his word. And then we're going to say the response part of Psalm 19 together, beginning at verse 12. But let's have a moment of quiet first. Verse 12 together. Who can discern his errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then will I be blameless, innocent of great transgression. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen.